The following audio is from Shiloh Presbyterian Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. More information about Shiloh Presbyterian Church is available at shilohopc.org. You'll remain standing this morning for the reading of our text. The text of our sermon comes as we continue to make our way through the Gospel of Matthew. We find ourselves here at the latter portion of Matthew chapter 19, beginning at verse 13 and proceeding through the rest of the chapter. This is the word of the Lord. Then children were brought to him, that he may lay his hands on them and pray. The disciples rebuked the people, but Jesus said, Let the little children come to me, and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them, And went away. And behold, a man came up to him, saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. And he said to him, Which ones? And Jesus said, You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, you Honor your mother and your father, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, All these I have kept. What do I still lack? Jesus said to him, If you would be perfect, go. Sell what you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come and follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but with God... All things are possible. Then Peter said in reply, See, we have left everything to follow you. What then will we have? Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or land for my name's sake will receive one hundredfold, and who and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Let's pray and ask the Lord's blessing on our study of this text together. Heavenly Father, we return again to your word, and we ask you, Father, that you would speak to us through it. Show us, O Lord, we pray, the words of eternal life, and teach us to be more earnest in our desire to follow the Lord Jesus Christ, to put to death our sin, to live unto righteousness, and to value appropriately the glorious Savior who is presented for us here. We ask it in his name. Amen. Well, 
One of the things that will come as really no new news to you this morning is that as we have made our way through the Gospel of Matthew, we have seen many instances in which Jesus finds himself having to correct misunderstandings about the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. Throughout the book, he finds his disciples to be extremely confused about the true nature of the kingdom. For instance, they're confused about why it is that there seems to be both those who are wheat and those who are tares in the midst of the kingdom, believers and unbelievers, it seems. They're confused about the coming of the kingdom. They don't understand that the coming of the kingdom as it has began to break into the world and the coming of Jesus Christ is only the first stage in the coming of the kingdom. And ultimately, the glory of the kingdom will come later at the end of the age. They have been confused about a number of things with regards to the kingdom. And as we approach this text before us this morning, we see that they are again confused, it seems, and not this time about the nature of the kingdom itself, but about the nature of membership in the kingdom of heaven. You note that every episode that we see before us here deals in some way with the question of who is and who isn't, and then how does one enter into the kingdom of heaven? Uh, surprisingly, we see from Jesus' own teaching here at the beginning portion of our text that those whom perhaps we would think were least likely to be considered in the kingdom of heaven, to have a portion in the kingdom, to have some possession in the kingdom, the little children who are brought in the hands of their parents to the Lord Jesus Christ for a blessing, they, Jesus tells us, have the kingdom. To them belongs the kingdom. And in stark contrast to that, the rich young man who comes and approaches Jesus, the one who really from every indicator as we meet him seems like a surefire candidate for the kingdom of heaven. He seems like an obvious choice. He seems like someone who would clearly be included in the midst of the kingdom. He is excluded from the kingdom. And the disciples again find themselves here shocked with regards to Jesus' teaching concerning the kingdom of heaven. And of course that leads Jesus at the end of our passage to turn from telling them about who is in the kingdom and who is excluded from the kingdom to teaching them how one enters into the kingdom. But every portion of the text Jesus uses here, or is teaching his disciples, and he's teaching us today as we read the text, about what it means to be a member of the kingdom of heaven. About who is included in the kingdom, about who's excluded from the kingdom, and ultimately how one ends up in the kingdom. And that's simply what we want to consider today. We want to consider the topic of membership in the kingdom of heaven, and we want to see Jesus' rather surprising comments with regards to this topic. First, as we've already mentioned, as we look at these children and the passage as it begins, we'll see him telling us surprising truths about who is included in the kingdom, and then who's excluded from the kingdom, and then how one enters the kingdom. And that's how we will proceed this morning. So begin with me, if you will, at verse 13, and we'll begin to consider the question of who is included in the kingdom of heaven. Note how the text starts. Then children were brought to him, that he might lay his hands on them and pray. 
This would not have been an unusual thing to witness in the ancient world. Jesus was a rabbi. He was a teacher of God's people. And it was common, and it's actually reported in the rabbinical tradition, that it's encouraged by many teachers for them to advocate people bringing their children to a revered teacher of God's law and having them do just what they're asking Jesus to do here. Basically, place his hands upon them and pray for the children. And the reason for that is simple. They want their children to be blessed, and they want someone who they believe has a strong connection to the Lord to pray and to place a blessing upon their children. It was not an unusual sight. But interestingly, it seems that the disciples, for whatever reason, interpreted this action as being inappropriate in the case of Jesus. You know what happens next. The people bring the children to him. They make this request, it seems, to the disciples. And the disciples initially rebuke the people. They rebuke the people. Now, why the disciples do this is unclear to us. It may be the case that the disciples simply don't think Jesus has time for the little children. Perhaps he just doesn't think that it's worth Jesus' time of day to, to take time out of his busy ministry schedule and to spend time blessing these children. That's one possibility. But it seems to me that there may be something even more significant going on here because we note how Jesus responds to the disciples later. He tells them that these children are in some sense members of the kingdom of heaven. And that seems to indicate for us that the actual fundamental mistake the disciples are making here is that they do not recognize the shocking really reality that these little children who are being brought in the hands of their parents to Jesus have a stake in the kingdom of heaven. Now, we might think to ourselves, well, why would they question that? But if we think about it for very long, it, it's not hard to see why they would question that. I mean, if you think about what we just did a few moments ago, there are many people in the evangelical world in America today who would be quite simply scandalized by us placing the name of the Lord upon a little child. And the reason for that is simply that they don't believe that those children have any stake in the kingdom of heaven. And they don't believe that there's any way in which we can appropriately say that little children who don't seem to have faith, who don't seem to respond in repentance, who can't articulate a confession to us, they don't seem to understand any way in which it would be possible for those little children to have anything to do, really, with the kingdom of heaven. So as we come to the disciples and see them making this mistake... We may be surprised at it, but we shouldn't be because many people, even in our own day, make the same mistake. You see, what Jesus says here is rather startling. He says that these little children who have done nothing to get there are those who possess in some way membership, citizenship in the kingdom of heaven. It's a remarkable thing. Now, some will try to say that what we have before us here is simply another object lesson that Jesus is teaching the disciples about humility. And we saw something very similar to that in chapter 18. At the beginning of that chapter, Jesus teaches the disciples there that unless they turn and become like children, they will never enter into the kingdom of heaven. 
And so some will say, well, perhaps what Jesus is doing here is he's not saying that these children actually belong in the kingdom, but he's actually saying that these children are the kinds of humble people that come into the kingdom. But you note that that's not the language of the text. Jesus isn't using these children as an object lesson here. He's making the bald statement, as remarkable and as shocking as it might be to us and many others, that these children are actually in the kingdom. And the disciples' failure to recognize that is what prevented them from letting them come, as it were, to the king. You see, Jesus is saying, in effect, that The king of the kingdom always has time for the smallest and the most seemingly insignificant citizens of the kingdom. He values these children because he sees them as members of the kingdom of heaven. And we see what Jesus does. He takes these children in his hands and it seems here, he doesn't say that he prays over them, but we would expect that he probably prays over them as well before he goes on his way. In other words, he allows these parents to present their children to him. He places his hands upon them. He blesses them with prayer, and then he leaves. And it communicates very clearly to us that he has time for the children and that he sees what is happening here as these followers of his. Think about that for a moment. These people obviously recognized Jesus as something special. That's why they brought their children to him. He has time for his disciples' children. And he recognizes their special status. Now, as you would expect, if you read Baptist commentaries on this particular text, they will write for pages trying to convince you that this passage has absolutely nothing to do with baptism. And they'll say things like this. They'll say, well, there's no water in this text. That's certainly true. There's no baptismal formula in this text. That's certainly true. And in some ways, they're absolutely right when they say this text has nothing really to do with baptism. But there is another sense in which this text has everything to do with infant baptism. Because you see, here in this text, we see the presupposition which is elaborated throughout the rest of the Scripture, that children are, in a very important way, members of the covenant community of God, members of the visible expression of the kingdom of God on this earth. They are in Christ's kingdom. They are in Christ's church. That is a fundamental presupposition that you must abide if you believe that there is any validity to what we just did. And Jesus makes absolutely crystal clear right here that if you deny that truth, you stand against his own teaching. And he would rebuke you today the way he rebukes these disciples. And he would call you to recognize his own teaching and to recognize the value and the citizenship of the covenant children in the kingdom of God. Which surprises the disciples. They didn't expect this, clearly. And as the text continues, we see that the disciples weren't just confused about who's included in the kingdom, but they were confused about who was excluded from the kingdom as well, weren't they? 
look what happens as the text continues. We see a shift away from these babies, really. As the parallel passage in Luke tells us, these children are described as infants who come in the hands of their parents to someone else. Verse 16 tells us that as Jesus makes his way, it seems, away from this first episode, behold, a man came up to him saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And as the text goes on, we get a pretty clear description of what this young man was like. This young man, it seems, was first, he was young. (laughs) He was in the prime of his life. But also, he, we learn from the other Gospels, seems to have been a man of some prominence. He was a man who had been born or had achieved some status in society. He was described other places as a rich young ruler. And then, of course, I just said it, he's rich. All of these characteristics, by the way, we might seem as not that appealing in our own day because of the way we tend to look at people who uh, have those positions in society. But in the days when Jesus is instructing his disciples here, all of those things would have been seen as indicators, in many ways, surefire indicators that this man had been blessed by God. You see, they recognized his status, they recognized his wealth, and they saw in him someone who it seemed, outwardly at least, that the Lord was blessing. This was a man who would be really an obvious candidate for inclusion in the kingdom of God. He's someone who it would not be hard to believe was a citizen. And sometimes I think we read this text, it's a familiar text to many of us, and we think, well, that's true. He he has a lot of markers that would have uh, put him forth at that time as someone who would have been blessed by God. But really, we see that he's kind of a materialist. And there may be some truth to that as the text continues. We definitely see that he's not willing to give up his possessions. But I would suggest to you that that's not quite fair to this young man. You note that as he approaches Jesus, he doesn't do so asking for investment advice. He does so asking about eternal life. He was young, he was rich, he was powerful, but he also seemed to have some spiritual interest. You see, he recognizes something about himself here. He recognizes that he's missing something. And even though he has all of these wonderful blessings from the perspective of the disciples, he recognizes that he does not possess eternal life. And this interaction that he has with Jesus here shows us why this young man is not included in the kingdom of God. You'll note as the text continues that Jesus begins to expose this young man's heart. First, Jesus exposes this young man's heart by showing forth and demonstrating to us and to the disciples his very superficial understanding of the commandments. We see what he says here. He tells him, if you would have eternal life, what are you supposed to do? Well, follow the commandments. And then what is his response? Well, his response is simply, well, I've already done that. Now, any of us who are in any way, shape, or form familiar with God's Word and familiar with our hearts at any meaningful level immediately know that this young man has significant problems. Because 
if you know your own heart, you know that you certainly have not kept all of the commandments. And Jesus exposes here that this man is thinking about things in a very superficial way. But he continues down that same line of reasoning, doesn't he? You notice that he begins not with the first table of the law, those commandments which deal with God, but he begins with the second table of the law, those which deal with men. And he goes through the list of the commandments. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and your mother. And then he summarizes it all up with that positive summary of all of those commandments. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And the young man says, I've kept all of these. What do I still lack? And then Jesus proceeds to expose him again, doesn't he? Verse 21, what does he say to him? If you would be perfect, if you would be complete, go sell what you possess and give it to the poor. Now what is Jesus calling him to do there? Oh really, he's just telling him to put his money where his mouth is, isn't he? If you think about it for a moment, he's just got done telling him, no, 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 I've got this loving my neighbor as myself thing down pat. I I know how to do that. That's not a problem for me. I do it all the time. And Jesus just simply responds to him with a way in which he could do the very thing which he's just affirmed that he's already doing. He says, well, if you love your neighbor as much as you love yourself, it really shouldn't be a problem for you then if you go and sell everything that you have and give it to the poor. Because, hey, you care about those folks just as much as you you care about yourself, right? But he goes a step further, doesn't he? He tells him that if you do that, you will have treasure in heaven. He's not telling him to make a bad deal here, really, is he? He's not saying, well, go and suffer needlessly for the sake of others. Actually, what he's saying is, if you go and and you give all your possessions to poor people, and and you you come and you follow me, well, then you're going to have treasure in heaven. It's not a bad exchange. Temporal wealth for eternal wealth. And then, of course, I just said it, the last thing he calls him to do, the last thing he tells him, is to come and to follow Christ. And we see as we look at what Jesus has just done here, is he has masterfully pulled the wool from over this young man's eyes. He's shown him several things. The first thing he's shown him is that he has failed to keep the law of God. The second thing he showed him is that he doesn't have the faith to sell all of his earthly goods and to look for heavenly ones. And the third thing he shows us, again, relates to his faith. He demonstrates a way in which this man can value the Lord Jesus Christ more than anything on this earth. Give everything away and follow me. And you note the young man's response here. When he heard it, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. Of course, we see in those tragic words the reality of that young man's heart. 
we see that whenever he looked at his wealth, whenever he looked at his comfort, whenever he looked at the life he had, at the positions of status he had, and then, and then he looked at others, well, his possessions and his comfort and himself won out. But that's really not even the most significant thing here, is it? Because whenever he puts Jesus on that scale as well, his possessions still outweigh the value that he sees in Jesus Christ. And then it connects something that Jesus said earlier, doesn't it? You know, Jesus puts in this little seemingly throwaway line whenever the man first comes to him. He asks him, oh, why do you say that I'm good? And even in that little statement that Jesus makes, we, we start to see that Jesus discerns that while this man may think he knows something about Jesus, he doesn't really understand who he's dealing with. And we see that come to fruition here with his unwillingness to forsake all to follow Christ. He exposes his heart. And he teaches us as well, as we're going to see, something about what it takes to enter the kingdom. You see, one of the most important things about gaining entry into the kingdom of heaven is simply recognizing the value of the king. If you want to enter the kingdom of heaven, you must understand who Jesus is. You must believe in Jesus, and you must be willing, as it were, to live out of that faith, out of that trust, out of that recognition that Jesus is the pearl of great price. He is the thing which is worth giving up every other thing in this life to take hold of and to follow. And this difficulty, this problem that the young man has seeing past the glory and the good of his own possessions to see the incalculable worth of the Lord Jesus Christ is really what prevents him from entering into the kingdom. And Jesus begins to explain that, doesn't he, as he turns to his disciples. The young man goes off sorrowful, and he begins to interact again with his disciples. And he says to them in verse 23, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. And again, I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And when the disciples heard this, how did they react? They were greatly astonished. Again, we tend to think of the rich as those who are uh, abusive, oppressive, greedy. But in this day and in this culture, oftentimes it was something of the opposite. The Jews conceived of those who had great earthly wealth and position in this world as those who had been blessed by the Lord God of Israel. And what Jesus is sitting here telling them is simply this, that the person who you think is most likely to be included in the kingdom of heaven, I am sitting here telling you, it is nearly impossible for him to enter the kingdom of heaven. Actually, we'll take the nearly out of it. It is impossible. 
The man who seemed like he was spiritually minded. The man who seemed pious. The man who seemed to be receiving blessing upon blessing upon blessing from God. The man who seemed like an obvious candidate. He's excluded. And I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for that man to enter the kingdom. Some people want to take the fangs out of that last statement. They want to try to qualify that idea of a camel going through the eye of the needle by presenting all sorts of uh, you know, rationales for why Jesus may have used this word. Perhaps it's a reference to a particular entrance in the gate of Jerusalem or something like this. I don't believe that's what's happening here at all. I believe Jesus is making what is clearly an impossible statement. He's making the statement very clear that it is impossible for a man, a rich man, to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples are astonished. You've got to imagine at this point, as they have had to often have found themselves, they've got to be kicking themselves at their lack of understanding about the kingdom. They've got to be sitting there thinking, okay, we keep striking out. This is two strikes now. We thought the kids weren't in the kingdom. They're in the kingdom. Now we thought the rich young ruler would obviously be in the kingdom. He's not in the kingdom. We really don't know what's going on here. And so you can almost hear the frustration as their voice as they ask him the question, then who can be saved? In verse 25. And notice what Jesus does here. He looks at them, and it's very interesting that Matthew includes that. He shows us something of the body language of Jesus here. We can sense the intensity with which he addresses the disciples. He looks at them. He looked at them. And he said, With man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Beloved, that must have been good news. That must have been really good news. Because I would imagine the disciples were sitting there thinking to themselves, is anybody actually in the kingdom of God? And Jesus tells them, well, of their own accord, absolutely not. But what he does here is he highlights the glorious reality of the sovereign grace of God. As he answers that question, how can one enter into the kingdom? And he tells them simply this, that left to our own devices, it is impossible for us to be acceptable with our God. It is impossible with us to enter into citizenship in the kingdom of heaven. It is impossible for us to possess, as this young man was looking for, eternal life. But praise be to God, what is impossible with man is possible with God. Because all things are possible with God. It is a wonderful statement of God's grace, which we see Jesus making here. And it elicits an interesting response from Peter here. You, you could think that this is how Peter would respond. He has a tendency to sometimes put his foot in his mouth. And we may look at that here or may look at his response here and think that he's doing the same thing. But interestingly, Jesus, he at least puts up with the question because he answers it quite thoroughly for him. But Peter recognizes that what the rich young man was called to do is exactly the same thing that the disciples were called to do. 
And they did not do what the rich young man did. They didn't turn away from Jesus to seek after their own possessions, to cling to what they had in this world. Actually, they're obedient to the Lord. And they actually do give up everything they have and follow Jesus. And Peter then asked him, See, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? At this point, Jesus begins to teach the disciples about the wonders of the rewards that he will give to his followers for their sacrifices on his behalf in this world. Jesus tells directly the disciples, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you will sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Imagine the incredible uh, blessing that that would be. That statement that these disciples have just been given, that they would be those who would be given authority and given the privilege to judge all of the people of Israel, their own people. But he sees, or he makes it clear here that his blessings are not only for the disciples, the twelve disciples here, but they're for everyone who has followed him. In verse 29, he makes that clear. And everyone who left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. Very clearly here what Jesus is saying is that those who will be members of the kingdom are those who value the Lord Jesus Christ such that they are willing to give everything they have for him. What he's speaking about here is not so much the works that they do, although that's important, but he's speaking about the faith that they have. He's speaking about the reality that the members of his kingdom will see Jesus for who he is. They will see that following him, they will see that believing in him, they will see that trusting him is worth giving up everything they have in this world. And it's a remarkable thing to imagine for a moment that their friends and their neighbors and their family and everyone around them must be thinking that these people are insane. As they leave everything they have, they abandon all the seeming blessings that God perhaps has bestowed upon them materially in this world. They're willing to say goodbye to their families. They're willing to say goodbye to their wealth. They're willing to say goodbye to their homes. They're willing to say goodbye to everything. For the sake of Jesus, it must be utter foolishness from the perspective of the world. And yet what Jesus is telling us here is that it's actually the height of spiritual heavenly wisdom. Because what they see is what the world doesn't see. They see that Jesus is worth everything. And they demonstrate that in their willingness to give up everything for his sake. Those who will enter the kingdom may indeed, as Jesus says here in verse 30, be last in this world but they will be first in the next. Oftentimes, and no doubt, partially the reason why the disciples are so confused so often about the kingdom, oftentimes the perspective of the kingdom is completely contrary to the perspective of this world. 
It runs in complete opposition to what we would expect. It seems insane, really. And yet, if we look with the eyes of faith to the next world and to the King of heaven, it makes perfect sense. And Jesus, in this passage, has accomplished, I believe, his task that he set out to do, which he has radically reoriented the disciples' understanding of what it means to be a member of the kingdom. Amazingly, he has told them that they were drawing, in some ways, the parameter too tightly. They didn't understand that the children of those who were coming to Jesus could in any way be said to belong to the kingdom. And they were wrong about that, because the little children shouldn't be hindered from coming to Christ. They thought, in another way, that the kingdom was broader than it really was. Because they thought, obviously, the rich young ruler is a great candidate from the kingdom, and Jesus has corrected that and shown them through that the danger of riches and the danger of being focused on the blessings of this world, yes, but most importantly, he has shown them what it means to enter the kingdom by recognizing the value of the Savior and by willing to live out of that recognition. And brethren, that's what I want to call you to this evening, or this morning rather. I want to call you to cultivate the mindset that Jesus is teaching us here in this passage. I want to call you to examine your own mindsets, to consider what you are failing, perhaps, to give up for the sake of Christ. I want you to seek to cultivate in your own mind this day and throughout your life, for that matter, the heavenly-minded attitude that Jesus speaks about here that looks not to the creature comforts of this age, to the wealth, to the fame, to the power of this world, but rather a heavenly-minded mindset that is willing to become the least on the earth so that we might be the greatest in the kingdom. It's my prayer that that would be true of every single one of us here this evening, and that as we cultivate that mindset, that we would be useful in this kingdom, and that we would be used for the glory of our King. Let's pray. Amen. Gracious Heavenly Father, we pray, O Lord, as we consider this text, that you would teach us to value the Savior. We ask, O Lord, that you would show us your glory in the face of the Lord Jesus Christ. We ask, O Lord, that as we meditate upon that glory, that you would indeed transform us from one degree of glory into another. We pray, Father, that we would have a biblically informed understanding of the kingdom, even when it doesn't seem right to us, when it seems unusual to us, when it seems to be the reverse of what we would expect. Lord, teach us to cultivate a willingness to submit to your own teaching with regards to the nature of the kingdom and with regards to the members of the kingdom. Father, we pray that we would treasure our children that we would see them as valuable the way the Lord saw them. We pray, Father, that we would learn to put to death our fleshly desires, 
that we would turn from all of the good that this world has to offer us because we see the infinite value of our Savior. We pray, O Lord, that you would bless us with your Spirit, that we might have this mind among us that was also in Christ Jesus. We pray it in his name. Amen.